everybody, this is Coffee Chug, and I want to welcome you to episode 40 of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. And in this episode, I have an extraordinary guest, Brian McCormick. Brian McCormick is someone who focuses his life, his passion, his interest in research on the game of basketball. But more importantly, he is focused on learning and skill sets and mindsets and how do we work as coaches, as players, as teachers, mentors, and guides to do the right thing, to make our time that we're investing in ourselves and others worth every single second. And so even if you're not a basketball buff, I encourage you to to continue to listen to this podcast as he talks about so many amazing things. I want you to think about the context. And if you're not a coach or basketball player, how can this work if you're a teacher in the classroom, if you're with band teaching an instrument, if you're a parent dealing with kids, whatever it might be, the concepts permeate themselves across the board because in the end it's all about learning how do we learn how do we do the things necessary to be successful and good at the things that we love so i hope that you take time to listen to this podcast as always i would greatly appreciate it if you give it a thumbs up and a review on itunes and i would love to hear your thoughts and comments so as you listen they have questions ideas conversations spur don't hesitate to leave a comment. Let us know what you're thinking so we can connect, either on, on, the, on the website, coffeeforthebrain.com, on Twitter at Coffee Chug Books. Reach out to Brian McCormick. It's going to be great. So without further ado, let's jump in to episode 40 of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast with none other than Brian McCormick. This is Coffee Chug here with the latest, greatest episode of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I'm here with another outstanding guest, and uh, I, I continue to uh, question my, my, my good fortune to speak with so many um, amazing, insightful people. Um, today, we have on, on the show Brian McCormick. Um, Brian is someone, I'll let him introduce himself here in a minute, who I've been following his work for many years as a basketball coach, reading his books. He's got several. I'll put all the links in the show notes as well as his uh, Hard to Guard newsletter. Um, and I, I bring him onto the show today because a lot of the ideas that he talks about in terms of player development and basketball can obviously be applied to basketball and sports. But even more importantly, I see many lessons being able to be applied to the classroom as well. So without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce Brian McCormick. And uh, Brian, why don't you just real quick for everybody who who does not know who you are, um, who are you and uh, what do you do? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I guess, uh, I mean, I work as a adjunct professor right now, teaching strength and conditioning, and I, I coach high school basketball. 
girls varsity this season. Um, but I think I, you know, I do a lot of various things in and around basketball. Um, you know, in terms of writing, uh, consulting with coaches, uh, you know, helping to run practices, um, you know, then coaching teams and so forth. Um, so over the years I've been fortunate I've coached all over the place, both teams, uh, you know, in a couple of different countries in Europe, um, as well as, you know, coaching high school teams here, uh, and AAU teams here, and then also going and, and doing clinics, whether player clinics or, um, coaching clinics, uh, in various countries, uh, yeah, throughout the world. Um, you know, and I work closely with a couple of coaches, uh, in Africa, helping them with their programs, um, which is one of my uh, big interests is really helping them and, and seeing how they grow and develop their programs there. Um, but, uh, you know, around here, I spend most of my time uh, writing, you know, helping coaches as, you know, the best way I can and working with players. That's awesome. And uh, for those that, that haven't seen his work, um, it's definitely something for, for many of you to check out. And a lot of his stuff is available online. But uh, Brian, I, I want to jump into a, a question as I was going back. I've been, been rereading all your newsletters that you posted recently on Kindle and uh, some of your books. One of the things that I think really resonates with me um, is this idea that what I think is a, a fundamental flaw so much in, in education, but also in, in coaching and in sports is this idea that um, we continue to keep doing what I say as the wrong things right instead of focusing on doing the right things wrong in, in terms of building in, into this capacity of, of being a good basketball player or just a, in, in the bigger context of things, a, a good learner. So the question that I have for you is, and it might be a bit vague, is but how do we develop an awareness for coaches as well as for players where we, we stop doing these things that we know don't work um, but yet we continue to do them anyways because it's always been the status quo and start to move into doing the things that are right, even though it kind of goes against what everyone assumes um, is the way things should go. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, it's a little wordy, but. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I have an answer in terms of the, the specific question of how do we, uh, you know, convince coaches, I guess, to, to try new things uh, because my efforts uh, – seem to not work because um, I get, you know, a lot of, I mean, I, I certainly have, you know, the dedicated readers of my newsletter and books and so forth, you know, that kind of have embraced uh, the ideas. Um, but I think there's a lot of pushback from, you know, people who, you know, I don't know, uh, don't know well or don't converse with, you know, outside of Twitter or something like that. Um, you know, there's a lot of pushback and a lot of, uh, you know, defense for, uh, you know, the way that things have been done. So I don't know if I have a good answer for, for changing people's mind or, uh, you know, making progress in, in that direction or what I would perceive to be progress. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I get characterized in, in different respects because, you know, I do have a, you know, PhD and I do, you know, teach at a university and I have written books and so forth. Um, but most of what I write about in terms of the way that I run practices as a coach was based first on my actual coaching. Um, and even more than that on, you know, when I was a player. And so one of the first things that I did when I was a player is, 
you know, I stopped doing everything as a coach. I stopped doing everything that I did as a player that I couldn't find a reason for doing, Mm. um, which was probably poorly said. But, you know, drills that I couldn't see uh, connection to the game or drills that when I was a player, I thought, you know, why are we doing these things? This is, you know, it's not transferring to the game. It's, It's not connected to the game. There's no context here. You know, uh, I just stopped doing those things, Uh, you know, and later, uh, you know, years later, really, I put names on them and start calling them time wasters and fake fundamentals and and things like that. Um, But it's but it's ideas that I've had since I first started coaching when I was a college student, Um, you know, before I'd ever, uh, you know, taken a course, you know, before I'd ever heard you know, the science terms like constraints-led coaching or ecological psychology or even – I didn't even know what motor learning was, you know, as an undergraduate mm-hmm. student. Um, it was just, you know, what I did as a coach is I was, uh, you know, experimenting, uh, you know, with younger younger players. And, you know, one of the first coaching experiences I had uh, was coaching volleyball. And I had never played volleyball as a, uh, as a player. I'd never been on a team. I played it, you know, at the beach and stuff like that, but I'd never been on a volleyball team. And so I just started coaching this team. Uh, I, I didn't even realize I had accepted a volleyball job. I thought I had accepted a basketball job, but I showed up for the first day and the nets were up. And uh, the athletic director told me I'd be fine and left me with 15 girls to coach, you know, fifth and sixth grade girls volleyball. And so I basically made it up as I went along. Um, based on, you know, what I, I did as a player, you know, just playing pickup games. And then, you know, some conversations with girls that I knew that were decent volleyball players uh, that I played, you know, intramurals with in college and stuff like that. But so I was, I wasn't beholden to the same drills that everybody else did. And I kind of just figured out ways, you know, to try to teach things that I thought were important. And then when I started coaching basketball with the same group, I kind of extended that, and I went beholden to the drills that I did as a player. Um, I tried to make up, you know, drills based on what I was seeing and what I felt the players needed to improve. Um, and so, you know, as I developed as a coach, and I kept doing that and expanding and and being encouraged. Um, you know, when I coached AAU, I had a good mentor named Jerome Green. You know who basically got me away from doing most of the block practice type drills. Um, and, 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 uh, when I was coaching nine year olds, eight, nine year olds, cause you know, the traditional path is okay. Well, you have basically beginners, eight or nine year olds. They don't know anything. They don't have any skills. So you need to spend all your time working on basic skills out of context because that's the only way that they're going to learn how to shoot properly or make a proper layup mm-hmm. or pass properly or whatever. Um, and so he got me past that and to just, you know, they need to play the game. They need to, one, motivational aspect of having so that they want to learn more, uh, but also the only way for them to learn how to play a game is to actually play the game. And then once they've played the game and they can see how the drills relate back to the game, then you can start to bring back a little bit more you know, instruction and block practice and so forth because they understand how it connects to the game. Mm. Uh, whereas the more typical approach is, you know, you do these non-contextual drills uh, and then eventually someday you play a game and you hope that you keep players interested uh, long enough that they actually, uh, you know, make it to the game. So uh, 
that was kind of my background is, you know, I started in coaching having, you know, no coach education, uh, you know, and, and just thinking of the things that I didn't like as a player and ignoring those and trying to come up with new things, on, you know, on my own or through talking with other coaches or reading books or whatever. Um, and so I think, you know, to change the perception of, of how to do these things, I mean, that, that to me is, is the common sense approach is, you know, either as a player, do you not like doing, or what did you kind of as a player question? Cause you know, most of the people that go into coaching, you know, are ones who think about the game more, you know, they're not the guys who necessarily, you know, they may or may not have been great players. Um, but if they got to a higher level, it's typically because of, you know, working hard or really thinking about the game and becoming a real student of the game, you know, as opposed to somebody who maybe, you know, is quote unquote more naturally talented or somebody who's simply, you know, tall or whatever that gives them an advantage in basketball. So a lot of coaches, you know, are, are quote unquote the grinders, you know, are the ones that were really the student of the game. And so they were the ones likely that were thinking about these things as a player, like, why are we doing this drill? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I go to college practices and you can see some of the players, you know, thinking that, like, why are we doing this? This has nothing to do with what we do during games. And so I think the easiest way is the common sense approach is if you're coaching, you know, make a list of those things that when you were a player, what did you not like doing? And what did you question? You know, why, why are we doing this? And if you can't come up with a good answer why you're doing it, then get rid of it. Mm, uh, yeah. You know, and, and to me, that's the way. But I think there's a lot of resistance because, you know, people follow the same path. Um, you know, I was talking to a texting back and forth with a coach this week, you know, about kind of about the same thing. And that's what he said. He's like, well, if you do things differently, then you're kind of on an island on your own. And if you're not successful, then you're screwed. Right. Uh, but if you... <laughs> If you do things like everybody else and you're not successful, well, then, you know, then it's just you blame the talent or you blame something else. It's not because you tried to do something different. Um, So um, I think there's safety in staying with, you know, the traditional methods and what everybody's done for years. um, And it's somewhat riskier to change that. but to me, the, to get over that riskiness is, is simply to look at it from the common sense. And one, you know, what can we do to keep players motivated and wanting to come back? Um, but also, you know, what what is it about, you know, some of the drills that you dislike? Why did you dislike them? And, and if you have reasons why you dislike them, do you have reasons why you continue to do them? And if those reasons aren't very good, then just get rid of them. Right. And I think that's a good that's an important piece. I think a lot of times that building that self-awareness and having that honest conversation with yourself is huge. And I think it's, it's also scary for a lot of people to do, to really look at and go, you know, am I making the most effective use of my time as a coach um, with my players? You know, the other thing is you were talking that, that stood out to me, right? Reminded me a lot of uh, Simon Sinek's work about, you know, start with why, what is your why to everything that you're doing? And I think, Sometimes we just reference old old practice plans, or, or we you know we get this idea on the, online. We go, oh, that looks like like a good drill. We're going to do that. We don't really have a context for for why we're doing certain drills or applications um, in our practices. Um, but one question that when you were talking, I think I, I have to I've got to bring up. I know it's a hot topic uh, in sports all around, but 
you were talking about youth sports, the you know the eight, nine, ten year old range, and and I really liked what you said about they got to get some games to build that experience because how can we build context or contextual knowledge um, ourselves without life experiences? I think that's huge. Um, but but the question that I have is, so what is your your perspective on youth sports? I mean, we see this big push now for AAU and then these kids playing games all the time, um, you know, and and getting exposure and and this and that. Um, where, where, where are you at in, in this debate in terms of is it good or should they be spending more time just doing fundamental work and, and, and less games? And, I mean, it seems like everybody you talk to has a different perspective. And so um, as you've kind of traveled around and, and you dive into a lot of different things, um, where, what's your stance on that? I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, well, I think I, I just kind of approach it from a, an entirely different um, perspective because – you know, especially with beginners, uh, I don't even think they should be playing five on five. Right. Uh, so, you know, the questions that a lot of people have over specifics in terms of should we press, should we ban presses, should we ban zone defense, et cetera, et cetera. To me, the answer to all of those questions is play three on three, and then you don't have to worry about any of those questions. Uh, <laughs> you get more, you know, and then right. players get more touches. And then they get more skill work because they're getting more repetitions, but also uh, they're getting a completely different perspective. To me, it's not whether they need more fundamentals or they need more games or AAU's good or AAU's bad or pressing or no pressing. To me, is beginners should be playing three-on-three. They should be playing on a smaller basket height with a smaller ball. Uh, Mm -hmm. And to me, that solves many of the problems uh, because – excuse me – I think a lot of you know shooting issues come from players playing with the ball that's too big, for men's ball, size seven ball. You know, where where, where uh, you know second or third grade should probably be using like a size four ball, you know, for their hand size. And so I tend to favor playing other sports and then gradually basketball. You know, at a, at a later you know later age where you have some base of strength and coordination. Um, I think it's hard to develop as a basketball player when you're still developing you know, basic coordination and basic strength, you know, as a really, really young player. Um, certainly it's possible. You know, I see videos all the time of, you know, four- and five-year-olds that can dribble two basketballs, uh, which is fine and great. And if, you know, I, I think you have a if, – if your goal is to eventually become a, a good basketball player, a great basketball player, a college professional player, I think having a better base of coordination and strength is going to serve you in the long run. Um, and, and I don't think you develop that necessarily – by playing basketball or by, and especially not by playing only basketball. Um, so my first advice is always um, for, for players to, for children to play multiple sports. Um, and I, I like children to start in a martial arts or gymnastics basketball. I think be three. Um, and I think you can uh, both develop with a decent number of games and contextual playing and get more fundamental, uh, you know, practice, if you will. Uh, through that experience. I think the problem when that we have now is we've created this um, dichotomy between fundamentals on one side and AAU or games on the other side. And so people are, are you know, if you argue for AAU, you know, that's taken as, well, then you're against fundamentals. Or if you argue for fundamentals, then you're against games. Um, and some people frame their frame their questions or frame their responses in that way. We need, you know, you should only play X amount of games and you should spend this amount of time in practice. Uh, and, you know, obviously 
as with anything, the answer is, is probably in the middle. You know, the, the eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds that are playing 70 games a year are probably playing too many games. Um, but to me, it's not just because they're not getting enough fundamental practice. To me, it's because that means they're specialized in basketball at eight years old, and they should be playing other sports. And if you're playing baseball in the spring and soccer in the fall, you don't have time to play 70 basketball games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that, to me, is the problem with playing 70 basketball games. I think the fundamentals on one side and games on the other is that we end up with the fundamental side doing a lot of non-contextual practice where there's, um, you know, you can argue whether or not there's transfer to games. And, you know, what's the purpose of that practice? Is it to get better in practice, uh, you know, for games? Um, and if you're not playing games then and you're just training, uh, then, you know, what is that purpose of that training? Um, and then the other part of it to me is fundamentals go beyond just shooting, dribbling, and passing. You know, to me, uh, running a pick and roll, help defense, using screens. To me, those are basic fundamentals. Um, and if you're only doing individual training, uh, as you're how often I see it described as one, um, that's simply a drill to get, you know, pull up jump shots. Um, you know, without defense there and reading the defense and making decisions, you're not training pick and roll basketball. Uh, you know, a games versus, versus fundamentals argument just because people have their, uh, you know, people have kind of taken sides and, you know, they can't see the rationale for the other side. Um, you know, I tend to, if I, if I do argue with it, I tend to side more on the game side just because I disagree with a lot of the evidence that's used by those that are arguing for more fundamentals, um, specifically NBA players or coaches, Stan Van Gundy, Kobe Bryant, um, you know, et cetera, have made arguments in recent years. Uh, and to me, the arguments or the evidence that they use for their argument is flawed. Um, mm-hmm. And I've written about that several times. Uh, and this idea that, you know, Europeans have more fundamentals to me, it's extremely debatable. If you look at all the best players in the NBA, um, it's really the statement that can be made is that international players, you know, over six foot eleven have better fundamentals than. But most of the players that you would describe as the most fundamental players in the game all developed in an AAU system. You know, whether it's you know Steph Curry, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant you know, whoever you want to pick, Kyrie Irving, whoever you want to pick as your example of the most fundamental player uh, in the NBA, they all, for the most part, developed in the, the U.S. Mm, uh, yeah. And was AAU, most of them also used, you know, individual skill trainers and stuff like that to supplement their play. Um, but to suggest that, you know, Europeans are more fundamental, therefore we need to do more individual training, uh, which is an argument that I see made, uh, to me, in my experience, I've almost never seen individual training when, I, when I've when i lived and coached in Europe. I know it's growing more now as they tend to follow the American model, uh, make the argument that European players are more fundamental uh, than American players. When, you know, when I wrote about this last year, the top 10 shooters in the NBA in terms of three-point percentage were all born and raised you know, in the United States. Mm. Uh, so, so when I write about this issue, I tend to be more towards the AAU side, just because I think that the arguments used for the fundamental side uh, are somewhat inaccurate. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an interesting piece. I think kind of 
ties back into what you said earlier. You know, I think it's a lot about building that experience and uh, I guess what you call the quote unquote real world and then understanding the why of what we need to do to get better and building off of that as opposed to just doing fundamentals without a, a real purpose to why we're doing the drills at, at hand. Um, another thing is, is, as you were talking about those things that really kind of stood out to me and, and you've done a lot of work now over the years is um, as, as athletes have a lot of things at their disposal anymore between individual coaches or AAU or their own school teams or whatever it might be. Um, what have you seen in terms of um, – a shift in the difference in terms of maybe like, like the athletic mindset today with athletes maybe versus, you know, five, 10, 10 years ago. Um, do you see any sort of difference or do you see a progression or is it still a, a lot of the same kind of, kind of mindset with, with players? I think as I think back to when I played, there wasn't as much of, of, of these opportunities, at least at a younger age. And then it kind of built in, but now, I mean, you can find something every single day if you wanted to. And I think, um, as these players start to work through and grind to figure out who they are, um, whether they want or feel pressured to specialize or not to play a variety of sports. Um, what have you seen in the, in, in the athletic mindsets and in, in players today versus maybe when, when you first started getting into all this? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the environment, you know, has definitely changed so much, and and that obviously has an effect then on on the individuals involved. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think players today and children in general today, in a lot of ways, are more sophisticated, but in a lot of ways, they're also uh, less mature. Uh, you know, and I think that just goes back to. Uh, just the way society is in terms of, you know, with the internet, you can learn just about anything that you, you know, possibly want, um, you know, and find. And so you have, you know, greater knowledge in a lot of ways, but then, uh, you know, children aren't allowed to walk to the end of the block to go play with their friends. So in a lot of ways, uh, to me, I think that, you know, creates a, a certain maturity, uh, you know, at the same time, just just because they're not allowed to do things on their own. Everything has to be with a coach, uh, you know, and so if you want extra practice, well, it means you have to get a, you know, skills trainer. I think to a certain extent, I think that's why a lot of parents use skills trainers is because it makes sure that their child has a safe environment um, and has access to a gym. You know, I mean, I remember the first time I had a dad tell me that he wouldn't have his son work out outdoors. I was, it was probably like 2004, 2005. And the, the father, I had spent most of his childhood playing on outdoor asphalt, you know, concrete courts uh, in San Jose, California. Um, and here was his son who was like an eighth or ninth grader. Uh, and he was trying to get a gym for us to work out. And I said that I, you know, it was fine. We could work out, you know, at, at a park near their house that had a had a decent uh, court, uh, you know, more of the uh, rubber sport court type outdoor court. Right. And uh, and he's like, no, I we can't do that. I don't want him out there playing on that. I, I want to be in a gym, you know. And it just struck me because I was a father, you know, who had spent his whole, you know, basically childhood and teenage years playing pickup games on <laughs> on asphalt, and now he wouldn't allow his son uh, 
to go out and do the same thing, you know? And, and I just, I just think that's kind of how culture has changed, you know, and, and, you know, most parents who have the ability financially to hire somebody to work with their son or daughter, uh, you know, are trying to provide a better life or a better experience and they want to be viewed as good parents and so on and so forth. And part of this good parenting then takes away some of that individual initiative of the players to go out and form their own games and to go out and play on the asphalt or to play in, you know, in the snow or to play in the rain or, you know, whatever it is that children tend to be prevented from doing now. And then we tend to criticize the children because they're not tough, because they're not that. Um, but I think it, it starts with the environment that we've created for them and how in a lot of ways, uh, you know, we've really tried to make everything easier for children uh, to be successful, you know, and everything, you know, re- to society is is based on making things easier for people you know whether it's you know having i mean i can't even imagine being an undergraduate student now and having i mean i teach my classes and if if they don't know answers you know they just get on their phone and they google the answer you know in the middle of class like you know when i was an undergraduate we actually had to go to a library Uh, you know the you know i didn't i had got my first uh, internet account when I was a freshman, you know, there was no Wikipedia or anything like that yet. There's no YouTube, you know, I was an undergraduate before any of that. So, uh, you know, but all those things make it easier for children, um, you know, and college students or whatever now, but in the same respect, that easiness, I think is, uh, has a negative consequence, uh, because, you know, there isn't, in some respects, there isn't the challenge. Um, there and and there aren't the small challenges on a day-to-day uh, basis. You know, if you can just Google an answer in class instead of having to walk to a library and and look up here, but you also aren't learning how to overcome these small challenges. Um, you know, and same thing. You know, within sports, if you're going to a personal trainer every day, you know, or every week, and and getting constant feedback and being told exactly what to do. Well, are you really taking the initiative yourself to make yourself a better player? You know, are you learning, uh, you know, how to adjust your own, you know, are you aware of your own body or are you only aware of where your elbow is when you shoot when somebody's telling you where your elbow is to shoot? And so, you know, we've taken away these, these challenge opportunities, but those also present more learning opportunities that, you know, the easiness may not, uh, you know, afford, you know, and there's been some, been some uh, papers recently, you know, about how, you know, the way, you know, the difference between super champions and near champions, you know, is the way that they handle, uh, you know, basically the rough stretches or the, the adversity that they face, you know, and if, if you've grown up in this easy care for you and, and, you know, everything you need is at your disposal. And if you want to practice, well, there's a, that you can go see. And then you get, you know, to high school or college and you get cut from a team or, you know, you don't get the playing time that you want, or, uh, you know, your coach gets fired and now you have a different coach that maybe you don't get along with, or, uh, you know, maybe you get injured, you know, do we have the, the psychological skills, the emotional skills um, to deal with these setbacks and to overcome them and I think I think part of 
you know, the uh, player's mentality that a lot of coaches rant about, you know, in their YouTube videos and press conferences and so forth that have gained a lot of attention this year. Um, I think they're reacting to this. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily the player's fault, um, but I think it is the environment that we've created uh, and in which, you know, most children are, uh, you know, developing and being raised in these days um, where we're, we're trying to make things as easy as possible. And then we're surprised when something goes wrong or something becomes hard and we don't have the skills to cope with whatever it is that's hard or difficult. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, that's spot on. And I was sitting there just scribbling down notes like crazy when you were sitting there talking. Um, I never never thought of it in the context of the environment um, in which we've, we've created our, our society, really. It's, um, and I think that's uh, some really, really, really important key pieces. Um, so just to be cognizant of your time, and uh, I have, I've got one final question, and we'll kind of bring this to a close. And, and you've already t- touched on this a little bit. Uh, in, in just in, in, in your previous answer here, but one of the things um, that, that I read or kind of piece together from all your work is you talk a lot about um, whether directly or indirectly the, these kind of skills for being successful. And you've talked a little bit about that overcoming obstacles and things like that. And I know that uh, one of the things that, that I've, I've written down time and time again um, is you talk about, you know, talent potential can only take you so far as a player. And there's these other skills or things that you need. Um, I know in previous writings, you've talked about work ethic and determination and, um, you know, some of the things you just talked about with, with our environment now. Um, but as, as we kind of wrap this up, what, what do you see as being the, the, the skills needed for being successful? And I, I, I'm thinking of this in the, not just as a basketball player, but, you know, just successful as a learner in life, whether it's, you know, volleyball or in the classroom or wherever it might be. Um, what is it that you really think are, are those, those things that, you know, for, for kids listening or coaches listening or teachers that we have to make sure that we're building, I guess, these environments, um, so to speak, to allow these skills to, uh, to, to, to grow and manifest? Uh, well, the one that I continue to come back to is uh, the idea of growth mindset by Carol Dweck. Um, and Mindset, uh, her book, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, um, is probably the book that I recommend the most uh, to to parents generally, but also to coaches. Um, and so just the idea that, uh, you know, kind of like you were saying, your, your talent isn't fixed. So there's, you know, she describes two mindsets, growth mindset or fixed mindset. And if you have a fixed mindset, which is I look back at my childhood, I think I really, I, I think I had a fixed mindset in a lot of respects, um, probably through high school. And so um, with a fixed mindset, basically, um, you know, you're, you think of your skills or your talents as being innate. And so if you get to a point where you're not good enough, you know, let's say maybe you fail a test or you get cut from a team or you don't get the playing time you want on a team, uh, then you tend to give up because, you know, you essentially reach that point where your skills or your talents are no longer good enough. And because they're fixed, there isn't really anything that you can do. So there's no sense in working harder um, because working hard tends to show you that you're not really that good at what it is that you're you know, trying to be good at. Uh, whereas with a growth mindset, you don't believe that your skills or your talent is innate. Instead, you believe that through hard work, 
you can improve. And so if you fail that test, maybe it just means that you need to study harder for the next one. Or you get cut from a team, maybe practice more uh, You know, for the next season you can make the team. Or if you're not getting the playing time that you want, if you practice more or, or get better at certain things, maybe you can get the playing time that you think you deserve. Uh, and so that to me, I, I think uh, that's a big one, especially with early um, earlier children, younger children is, is really developing that concept of that idea in them at an early age, because I think that can help them uh, to sustain their motivation for a longer period of time. And if you can sustain your motivation and you continue to find joy and, and, you know, interest and uh, happiness in pursuing an activity, that's going to tend to help you sustain through, the harder parts as well. So if you find something that you're really passionate about, you're likely to, to work harder at that thing than you are if you don't find something you're passionate about um, or if you're just trying to get through something. And so that's I think that's one of the things that people forget from um, Anders Erickson's work um, mm-hmm. into deliberate practice. Yeah. Um, is one of the things that he says, deliberate practice is certainly necessary to reach, you know, an elite level of any activity. Most of his research, you know, is in music or chess, so piano, violin, chess. Uh, and, and But one of the things that he talks about is before you can really invest this time in the deliberate practice, you have to have a passion for that, a genuine interest in that activity. And that, that passion will sustain you through the deliberate practice because he describes uh, deliberate practice as something that's, inherently not fun uh, and so this is one area where I you know have some issues with the exact transfer of the deliberate concept practice concept from music to sports because I do think uh, you can enjoy basketball practice I don't think it has to be inherently not fun for you to get something out of it uh, but using his concept uh, if you don't have the passion for what you're doing and a lot of times that passion comes uh, from having a, a, an aptitude at a younger age, you know, we tend to like doing what we what we're good at doing. And so, if you show some aptitude in basketball or violin or piano at a younger age, you're more likely to, you know, start to really have an interest in that or a passion for that activity. Whereas, if you're, you know, if you pick up a basketball and you're terrible at it and you don't see any immediate improvements, you're unlikely to develop a passion for it. Um, but having that passion will then sustain you through the harder parts of the, you know, the deliberate practice that's going to help you then take that passion and, and help you to get to a higher level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, having the, the growth mindset at the beginning can help you as you develop that passion for an activity uh, and see that your improvement or that, that your improvement is based on your work, is based on your practice, based on your effort more than some innate skill. And then you can, uh, you know, sustain through the hard parts and get more from that practice and hopefully come out the other end as, you know, a better player or a better musician or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, so I, I think those, you know, and then, you know, obviously Angela Duckworth's uh, research into grit, you know, is also one of the hot topics, you know, within talent development and, uh, you know, skills and so forth. So, 
to me, those those are kind of the, the big issues. But but growth mindset tends to be the one that that I constantly come back to and, and stress um, for parents and coaches, especially with the younger ones. Because I think if you if you start children with the right mindset, you know, and then you give them appropriate challenges, I think that's a much easier way uh, for them to develop success uh, than to have to go back and fix, you know, somebody with a fixed mindset at a later age, you know, and try to change them from having this fixed mindset that, well, my work doesn't really matter to having this growth mindset of, oh yeah, I really can improve and I can get better. Um, and I think if, if you develop that at an early age, then they can find something that they're passionate about that can sustain them through the deliberate practice that can tend to give them, uh, you know, tools to handle the shortcomings or, or the adversity that they're going to face. And they can then, you know, kind of show the grit, you know, of, of being able to work towards a long-term goal and set goals and, uh, you know, over again, overcoming the adversity and the hard parts, the hard practice, you know, the number of hours it requires uh, and sustain that effort. Uh, you know, and that I think tends to be how you develop into a successful person, whatever it is, whatever discipline you're in. Um, but to me, I really uh, do like the idea of the growth mindset as kind of the, the foundation for the other things. I love that. And I think that's, uh, that's so, so powerful. And I think it's uh, definitely a, a key idea to maybe wrap this podcast up on. I, I think um, there's so much truth in that. And I'll make sure I put uh, links in the show notes to all the references that you've talked about. Uh, definitely some of my, uh, my favorite books as a reader as well. Um, Brian, this has been, been absolutely fantastic. So much, uh, insight and wisdom. I think a lot of things for people to think about, whether they're a coach, a parent, a player, um, a teacher, whatever it might be that, um, I think we really got to sometimes just pause and, uh, have some, uh, just deep reflection on, on what we're doing, how we're going about doing it. And, uh, you know, really taking a look at the experiences and the why and purpose to a lot of what we're doing. So uh, I, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, uh, to talk to me. Um, and just to kind of wrap up, um, where can people find you if they, if they want to know more about you and, and, and the work that you're doing, um, what's the best way for them to, to find you online in, in this uh, day and age where it is easy to uh, Google everyone. <laughs> um, probably the easiest is Twitter at Ben McCormick. Um, my website's 180shooter.com, so the, the numeral is 180shooter.com. Um, and then a lot of my old writing um, and old blogs is found at learntocoachbasketball.com. Um, so I think there's close to a thousand, maybe 500 to a thousand articles on that site now. Um, so that's probably the best place to find, uh, you know, content that I've, everything that I mentioned today. Um, and then of course, most of my books are available on amazon.com. If you search my name and then basketball, it's pretty easy to find. Awesome. And I'll make sure I put links to all that, um, in the show notes. Um, and with that, uh, Brian, I just want to thank you so much again for uh, taking the time to talk and, um, I look forward to the ideas and conversations that, uh, spur from uh, people listening to this podcast. So uh, thank you so much. 